0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we are very pleased to welcome you to this important and timely discussion of U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the President of USIP, which was established by Congress in 1984 as an independent, nonpartisan, national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict abroad. It is a special honor to welcome to USIP Dr. Kirk Campbell, Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States and Coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs on the National Security Council. Dr. Campbell has a long and distinguished career inside and outside of government, having served as the chairman and chief executive officer of the Asia Group and chairman of the Center for a New American Security. Dr. Campbell has been a member of the Defense Policy Board at the Pentagon, a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard, on the board of directors for Standard Chartered in London, and from 29 to 2013, Dr. Campbell served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, where he was a key architect of the Obama administration's pivot to Asia. We are also privileged to welcome Stephen Hadley, the National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush, and from 2014 to 2021, USIP's Chair of our Board, who will lead us in a conversation with Dr. Campbell. Probably no region is more central to US foreign and security policy than the Indo-Pacific. During this morning's discussion, we will look forward to reflecting on the virtual summit between Presidents Biden and Xi, the new OCUS alliance, and the role of the Quad, Australia, Japan, India, and the US in ensuring a free and open Indo-Pacific as the bedrock of our shared security and prosperity. We also look forward to reflecting on China's position and role in the Indo-Pacific, including the buildup and modernization of its military and very particularly its new investments in nuclear and missile programs that could alter the global nuclear balance. There is now a wide bipartisan consensus in Washington that success in the Indo-Pacific requires a smart, energetic U.S. strategy for competition and, where possible, cooperation with China. In his recent summit with President Xi, President Biden stressed the importance of establishing some common sense guardrails in the relationship as a means to keep the competition from boiling over into outright conflict. At the same time, our president has left little doubt about the many deep differences that separate the United States and China. For those of you joining us online, we invite you to pose your questions via the chat function on our website. And we welcome everyone to follow the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag at USIP Indo-Pacific. Dr. Hadley.
1: Lise, thank you very much. Kurt, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Steve, it's my honor. Thank you very much.
1: I'd like to pick up really where Lee's left us with the virtual summit between the two presidents. Um, I think there seemed to be an appreciation in that summit of both the depth of the disagreements and also the potential risks of an increasingly competitive relationship. So in light of the virtual summit, where does the US-China relationship stand at the present time? And what can you tell us about the emerging Biden administration approach to the US-China relationship?
2: Well, first of all, Steve, I want to thank you and thank the U.S. Institute of Peace for hosting us. I do want folks to know, I hope this isn't a problem, probably the person who's been most generous and helpful behind the scenes providing private counsel. Uh, very few people understand the challenges of these jobs, has been Steve Adley, and enormously helpful in thinking through what are the most important challenges confronting the United States. So gratitude to him and appreciation for um, that selfless service, both when he was in government and now helping others struggling with the same challenges. So Steve, I I hope you, if it's okay, if I just put this in a broader context. And I think the most important thing for us to think about is when we conceptualize and talk about US-China policy. It's not simply the bilateral context, and it's not uh, exclusively the international domain. So what the president and his senior team tried to articulate at the outset is that we were going to try to pursue a comprehensive integrated strategy, which actually fundamentally begins at home. And I think what he has tried to do through consultations and engagements uh, across the political aisle is make clear the most important ingredient in our success in the Indo-Pacific and with China is to demonstrate that we can um, engage actively domestically invest appropriately and be competitive internationally the ramparts of competition uh, in this new era that we are confronting in the indo-pacific of course there will be military issues that we have to focus on but it's really investment in technology ai quantum computing 5g human sciences these are the arenas where the united states has enjoyed unique advantages, but frankly, our advantages have been tested and challenged, and we have to invest and double down on those areas of uh, innovation inside the United States. And so what the president has tried to do with a series of engagements, again, across the aisle, is to make those investments so that we can, in fact, run faster. And so it's not uh, an accident that the uh, virtual summit, virtual engagement between the two leaders happened on the day that the signing of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has many elements associated with not just traditional uh, infrastructure, but technological innovation. It's also the case that the important ingredients in our strategy are deep engagement with partners and allies. So the week before the president had participated in the APEC summit hosted by New Zealand, US ASEAN Summit, a variety of engagements as part of the East Asia Summit, a number of innovative uh, meetings and engagements on technologies with Europeans, and again, the first ever Quad Summit that we'll talk a little bit about um, as we go forward. This is meant to send a larger context of both domestic innovation and international commitment with partners, friends, and allies, to basically send a signal that the United States is here to stay in the Indo-Pacific, and we're going to defend and support the operating system that has been so good for so many of us for many years. So that's the context um, uh, that was set before President Biden sat down uh, for uh, deep interactions over almost four hours on Monday night with President Xi. Um, I think what we sought to do in those meetings, um, that, that those interactions were a couple of things, Steve. The first and most important is to have open, clear lines of communication and to engage deeply in a statesmanlike, uh, important fashion in which we addressed the issues where we disagree and the prospective areas where we could work together openly and clearly. I think we recognize, given what's happened in China, in which so much power has been um, Uh, accumulated by President Xi, that we have to engage in this current period of relations with China between the two leaders, and in fact, ensuring that there is this open, respectful line of communication between the two is an essential feature of our diplomacy. In the past, we had a lot of big meetings and engagements. In this current environment, ensuring that there is this, um, this ability to communicate honestly at the highest level is most important. We also wanted to make clear that we believe the dominant paradigm, the chief characteristic of US-China relations right now is competition, and that we are competing across the board everywhere. We believe it's possible to compete responsibly in a healthy way, but at the same time, I think the president, our team recognizes that it will be important to try to establish some guardrails, right? And we can talk about what that means that will keep the relationship from veering into dangerous uh, arenas of confrontation. We recognize that this is a challenging endeavor, and this was really meant as uh, a initial conversation about areas that we think we can potentially work together, like climate change, but also make clear where our purpose and determination are clear, like on the maintenance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So Steve, that's a long answer, but it—but I, I think what I'd like you to take from this is that our strategy in the Indo-Pacific is integrated. It's multifaceted, and it's not just about um, uh, competing with China. It's also about advancing areas where we believe we have something to offer. We'll have the summit of democracy upcoming. We have been made a major commitment to vaccine diplomacy across Asia. These are the interconnected pieces of what we think will help the United States sustain our leadership in the region.
1: Thank you for that. I'd like to focus on this quad. I mean, one of the things Mm -hmm. you've done in the terms of this strategy is made clear that working with friends and allies on the challenge presented by China is a critical part of that strategy. And this revitalization and upgrade of the quad is clearly part of that. I really want to ask you three questions about that. One, what is the focus going to be on the quad? What are the, you know, it's a pretty broad agenda. Yeah. What are the three or four things that are most important? That's the first question. Second question is how does the quad relate to the other institutions that are in the Asia Pacific? Uh, Uh, particularly ASEAN. Uh, How does it relate to ASEAN? What do the ASEAN countries think of the Quad? Do they view it as a competitor? Is there a possibility actually for coordinated action between the Quad and ASEAN? And then thirdly, what's been the Chinese reaction to the Quad? Uh, Pretty hysterical or pretty polemical, I guess. Uh, how do you think they have reacted to it so if you could yeah address thanks steve. I'll try.
2: first of all for those <clears throat> who who you know perhaps are not aware but the parentage of this institution is critical to keep in mind and i'm sitting next to the person who helped bring the quad together originally after the tragedy of the tsunami in indonesia and it was president george w bush steve hadley Condi Rice, who realized that there would be a need to bring countries together to respond to an unprecedented catastrophe that had hit Indonesia and other parts of of Asia as a whole. Since then, the institution has waxed and waned. Uh, During the Trump administration, there were some important meetings. I think when President Biden and his team came to office, I think there was a recognition that these four maritime democracies, Japan, India, Australia and the united states shared so much with respect steve to what we wanted to promote in the indo-pacific and i do want to underscore that what we see this venue as being about is actually promoting common good not against uh any particular issue and so if you look at the agenda that has emerged over um the last 10 months um steve around the quad It is uh, deeply about deliverables that are of interest to the people in the Indo-Pacific. Huge commitment by the end of 2022 to provide upwards of a billion doses to Asia uh, that will be manufactured in India, supported by the United States uh, and Japan. Uh, We will work on a number of initiatives in terms of infrastructure, clean health, Steve, at the at the virtual summit uh, uh, in September, uh, the president announced that we will be inaugurating uh, an educational initiative that will bring um, uh, STEM students from all four countries, including the United States, to study at American uni- universities to link our countries together as we go forward. And so, we you will note in our um, in much of what we have discussed and the work that we've done. It is about a, um, a positive agenda. It's about serving the interests of the people in climate change and pandemic. I'm actually here with one of the uh, architects of the initiative and want to just highlight Rap Hooper, who's a big fan of Steve as well. We've been able to work together with each of these countries in building out habits of cooperation, large groups of um Both in the public and private sector that want our four countries to work together, Steve, on common purpose. The the um, it it is not a formal alliance; it's an informal gathering. Um, I think all countries, all four countries, recognize that that's important at this juncture, and I I think we all recognize that we have to go slowly, purposefully, and carefully, and that's what we've tried to do. Um, Japan has agreed to host uh, the meeting in 2022, and we'll work with them on timing and to make sure we follow through on what we've committed to, um, which is extraordinarily important, but also look at new initiatives as well. We're most focused on ensuring that ASEAN understands that the Quad uh, recognizes and wants to support the concept of ASEAN centrality, in our overall strategy. We believe that the two institutions, frankly, have complementary goals and ambitions. But we have a lot of work to do to make sure that ASEAN understands that this, that these initiatives are really designed to help them in, in health uh, across the board, as I've laid out. Um, we are looking to advance those conversations. We've already done a lot, but more needs to be done. I, I think it would be fair to say At the virtual meeting, President Xi made very clear that a number of things that the United States is doing caused China some heartburn. And I think at the top of that list is our bilateral reinforcing and revitalizing our uh, bilateral security alliances with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia, the Philippines, and Thailand. New partnerships that are of critical importance like Vietnam, the Quad working constructively with India, AUKUS and, frankly, talking to the Europeans uh, in a more dynamic way about areas of cooperation on technology and the like. I think President Xi made clear that that those uh, from uh, from the Chinese perspective represent uh, what they would describe as Cold War thinking. We believe they are essential features interconnected overlapping multi-purpose some formalized some informal that together help um, uh, pursue this operating system that has led to such profound prosperity over the last 30 years Um, i think uh, uh, the critical thing for us going forward steve is to be open and transparent about the work and so that's one of the reasons why each of the leaders has put out clearly uh their goals and ambitions we have um made clear what our um, game plan is for areas we want to work together we've also made clear that we want to work with other nations so we've had a long line of countries that want to associate that's always a good sign and we hear that both in europe and asia and i think that's our goal going forward i think the initial uh, effort though is to make sure that the partnership between these four countries the Partnership that you help build steve is strong and stable as we go forward.
1: I want to get to a lot of other uh, Subjects to talk about but one last question on the quad if I can push you a little bit Where does this head over the next three to five years? Are you thinking of it? Will it become more institutionalized will it have a former formal secretariat? Uh, will other countries be available uh, and asked and permitted to join you know, there are even some people who think this is, the, in the future, going to be the, the yeah. NATO of, uh, of Asia. How do you see this? Steve,
2: I think the consensus of the four countries at this stage is that it is appropriate to be considered as an informal gathering. Um, I do not believe we will take steps in the near term to institutionalize, and that is the strong view of all countries involved. That does not mean that there won't be deeper cooperation, sustained working groups. In fact, we are working deeply and collaboratively as we speak on a whole range of issues, and I think that will continue. I do believe that there are some areas that the four countries want to work more deeply in. I believe we will leave our mark in the next year and beyond on vaccines. But I think there is a goal as we um, put in place Build Back Better World, work with other, uh, with Japan, uh, uh, with Australia, and India. Infrastructure, particularly in Southeast Asia, is going to be critical and that we offer opportunities for uh, other kinds of investments in the region as a whole. And that might be investments in education and technology. We will explore that as we uh, go forward. I also believe that each of these countries, in their way, are interested in clean technology, uh, more generally, uh, in elements of 5G. And so I think there are going to be a number of venues for cooperation that are practical, constructive, that you can actually point to more directly. I think we, we will also see more efforts in new domains like cyber and space maritime domain awareness these are things that we think are critical and already we have groups inside each of the governments numbering in the hundreds frankly that are engaged on a regular basis on finding ways to deepen and strengthen cooperation among the four Um, i do think we will work um, with other countries um, whether they will join formally or whether they will associate with project basis, that's really the topic for the leaders. And I think they agreed at the last session that, look, let's get deeper among the four of us first before we look to, to you know figure out how to expand um, institutionally or, uh, or the like. So I think that's the best answer I can give. I will say that what was exciting to see, Steve, is, look, It would be, it's a hard thing to be a Democratic leader right now. And to see those four leaders get together and they, you know, there is a common experience, right? And to see each of them uh, together in a sense of working constructively was, frankly, deeply satisfying. And uh, at the end of, I don't mind revealing, at the end, of the session that we had planned in Washington at the White House, the President said, do we get to meet some more? (laughs) It's because he enjoyed the interaction so much with Prime Minister Modi, Prime Minister Suga, which was his last uh, uh, venue, and Prime Minister Morrison from Australia.
1: Let me ask you one last question on the Quad, and that is the role of India. I think a lot of people were surprised that India would be willing to affiliate with the other three in such a, a public way India is the only quad member of course who is not a formal US yeah. treaty ally and has in the past has been reluctant to engage itself in anything that looks like a kind of alliance structure, even a soft alliance structure. Uh, but I think China's behavior towards India on the border has probably moved India's thinking along and let me just ask you, were you surprised that India was willing to affiliate it? Uh, do you think this Shift, if you will, from the traditional India, uh, Indian point of view, is uh, enduring. And finally, can you talk a little bit about where U.S.-India relations are going outside of the
2: Quad? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Look, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to throw you too many bouquets, but the origins of the of the of the closer partnership between the United States and India began in the Bush administration, in which dynamic engagement on very complex issues in the nuclear arena opened up the initial windows uh, of opportunity and cooperation that we have built on subsequently. So I would say just a couple of things just to keep in mind as we go forward. First of all, the people-to-people connectivity between India and uh, the United States has really manifested much more clearly in a bipartisan way. And so you see a succession of administrations that have, which, which vary dramatically. And I don't need to tell you all this, but are united in a recognition that a key fulcrum player on the global stage in the 21st century will be India. And it is profoundly in American interests to build that partnership, right? And we share so much in common in terms of innovation and you know, spirit. Um, I, I think despite some bureaucratic challenges in both governments and you know, some historical you know, legacies, the, the broad sweep of history has pulled us together. And that's going to continue. And so I think the most important thing, Steve, is the attraction and the, the, the desire and dynamism to tackle problems together. It is also undeniable, though, that there things happen on the global stage that we need to recognize: the border disputes in the disputed territories in uh, in the Himalayas, and these ungodly conditions um, uh, in which uh, uh, a number of Indian <coughs> troops uh, uh, were killed uh, last year, and a real sense of of heightened tensions between china and india it would be difficult to exaggerate the strategic significance that is had in delhi a real um, I, I don't like the 9 11 because it's an in, in international but a real sense of a, a new strategic paradigm which has forced india or encouraged india to reach out and to build not just with the united states but other countries uh, stronger bonds to signal that India is not alone and is working with other countries. And I believe that sense of, um, that sense of wanting to work with others and to stand up is part of the essential Indian character. And I believe that that will continue. And I, I, I will also say that, um, I, you know, this was a point that was made by President Biden. To be honest i i I can't go into too much detail in these private conversations steve but in the interactions between the two leaders president biden just very directly said look i've had so many conversations with leaders and they all say the same thing that they're worried that china has taken steps coercive steps militarily commercially that has created tensions globally and has upset the bilateral relationship with China and basically said, you know, I think some of these things are, uh, you know, not antithetical to China's interests. And I don't think she was, uh, he didn't respond directly to it, but a very clear statement about that. I would say the country that was most affected in terms of thinking in those terms, Steve, is probably India. So I would be of the view, I'm very bullish about the, about the, the future uh, with India. I think we all recognize that the critical, crucial member in the Quad is India. And um, it it, it holds a deeply meaningful, meaningful place in all international gatherings right now. And we respect that. And we are determined to do what we can in the bilateral context to build relations. I would just simply say. You see a lot of areas that 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 we're working together on in the defense realm diplomatically. We probably need to do more commercially, figuring out the way forward. There are challenges there. Probably not for this venue. It has to be done appropriately. But at the same time, um, this is a moment for um, thinking creatively and strategically about what's possible between the United States and India. And if you look at a couple of again, sort of critical countries in Asia that will be defining in the future. India is probably the probably at the top of that list. Maybe Vietnam, a few others are also central. And I believe that whoever is in office in uh, Washington, Democrat or Republic, Republican, will do what's necessary to help build that relationship.
1: Thank you for that. I want to turn a bit to. Uh... Another subject, just before the Quad Leaders Summit, the administration announced a new defense arrangement with Australia and the UK, the so-called AUKUS arrangement. (laughs) Um, I want to focus really on two issues, two aspects of that. Most of the public focus has been on the help that will be provided to Australia to build nuclear-powered submarines. I want first question is a sort of at the strategic level. Is there more to AUKUS than the submarine deal? Uh, are there other important aspects of the arrangement that you would like to talk a little bit about? And the second is a question actually that came from one of the listeners in, in the audience, uh, and it's this: Australia needs to upgrade its maritime defenses quickly, and the AUKUS timetable to get Australian flag nuclear submarines on patrol could be very long indeed. Is the Biden administration considering any plan to help Australia to lease or buy diesel submarines, perhaps even from the French, to give it enhanced interim capability, even while it builds a new nuclear subs of its own? This is from Michelle Zielinski, who's the Fulbright Scholar at the CSBA, the Center for Strategic Budgetary Assessments. Good question. So if you could address my strategically what's okay. in the AUKUS arrangement, and then this tactical or specific question about helping Australians get a submarine capability early.
2: So I would say, <laughs> from my perspective, the strategic rationale behind this uh, grouping of the United States, uh, Great Britain, Australia, our closest allies in many respect, uh, the strategic rationale is just unassailable. Each of these countries has deep Uh, reasons to be connected and cooperating in the Indo-Pacific going forward and I think this grouping seeks to do this in a myriad of complex ways, Steve, and I'm glad that you asked about that. So basically um, earlier this week uh, President Biden and uh, our National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan announced that we had just brought on board a team that will lead the 18 month study which will basically um, provide a uh, roadmap, uh, architecture for how the three countries will work together um, in the years ahead. Uh, so, Dr. Not just on
1: the submarine issue, yeah, I'm gonna, but I'm more talk broadly. To,
2: yeah, more broadly. So, <laughs> so uh, the president announced uh, Jim Miller, who's well known to Steve, he had served with distinction in previous administrations, deeply knowledgeable about defense, about design, procurement. Um, I can't imagine a better person. He has been tasked essentially to do three things the first is basically design and architecture about how the three countries will work more proactively on defense on sharing perspectives of the indo-pacific and so what that means sort of on the day-to-day basis is how defense uh state diplomatic other um uh, officials will meet regularly and will basically seek to harmonize our views and our positions in the Indo-Pacific. For us, that's important because basically, it ties Australia more deeply to us. We already have a very strong partnership. But this, I think, is fundamental. And I think Great Britain, as it considers its global role, wants to be much more focused on the Indo-Pacific. And so that's part of the effort of bringing Europe and Great Britain is obviously a critical player. We want to extend this um, overall engagement with Europe about Asia. But Britain, as a first step, will then be focusing more on the Indo Pacific. Both of these countries have now made a fundamental strategic choice to work with us in a uh, in uh, a, a range of ways in the Indo-Pacific. So that's the first thing, Steve, and, and that's actually of critical importance. As you know from your time in government, these high-level meetings and engagements tend to drive policy and decisions. So that's his first task. The second task, the one that I'm grateful for asking about, is that is that each of our countries has certain areas um, of deep innovation, whether it's in cyber, whether it's in undersea capabilities, whether whether it's military AI. And so I think there's a desire to engage, to see what we can learn from each other, to see what can be harvested from that in applicable ways that will help um, engender uh, a more effective security and deterrent approach. I think the goal here, Steve, and I think what, what Mr. Sullivan has said in his Louis speech is that this part of the arrangement is meant to be an open architecture and we expect that other countries both in Asia and Europe will participate with us perhaps not immediately but over time so it's made clear that there and particular you know they'll have to be careful work in terms of scoping about about certain sharing of sensitive technologies. But we think that is important, and we've made that that clear to Europeans. And then the last is um, Dr. Miller and his team, and the teams in Australia and Great Britain. Remember, they've also got very high-level teams working on this. Their task is to do whatever possible to provide um, uh, the Royal Australian Navy with options, to build nuclear submarines as rapidly as possible, and I don't want to prejudge uh, this long-term, you know, uh, that 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 we can't meet these challenges. Jim is deeply innovative, creative. We're looking at a lot of different options. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through them right. uh, here today, but we realize and recognize. That this is that there are some immediate and medium-term challenges, and that we can't simply wait for long-term solutions. And I think there's a deep recognition that that's the time frame we're working on. And so each of the countries are seized with this, and they understand. And I think um, you know, I, I Jim will have more, and we will have more to say about the way forward. But I do want to under, underscore why this is important, Steve. I would think in the next little while, we will have more British sailors serving on our uh, naval vessels, Australians and the like, more of our four deployed assets in Australia. This leads to a deeper interconnection and um, uh, almost a melding in many respects of our services and working together on common purpose that we couldn't have dreamed about five or ten years ago, and fundamentally it leads to what we believe is going to be the most essential feature of an effective strategy in the Indo-Pacific, and that's deeper cooperation with allies and partners. These tasks ahead in the Indo-Pacific we cannot take on alone. We must take it on in partnership.
1: Just the other day, the Pentagon released its annual report on Chinese military power in which it assessed that Beijing is rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal, uh, which should, uh, could reach 1,000 warheads by the end of the decade. This is up from 400 estimated in the last report. It's been publicly reported that President Biden, unders- quote, underscored the importance of managing strategic risks in the conversation with President Xi and that some form of strategic stability dialogue between the countries may be in the offing. I know Jake Sullivan made some comments about this, very much a work in proge- progress. Um, was there an agreement, actually, to launch a strategic stability uh, dialogue with China? And what do you think would be its form? And would it address the nuclear programs
2: yeah. of the two countries? See, good questions. And I, I'll try to put it in a larger context. I think it would be fair to say, since beginning in about 1996, 1995, and you experienced when when you were in government, what we have witnessed is one of the largest military buildups across every sector, shipbuilding, uh, nuclear, uh, number of of technologies that are concerning um, on the part of China uh, in modern times, this massive military Uh, investment and uh, new capabilities of the like. I think we're of the view that some of this is destabilizing. Much of it has been done in a non-transparent manner. And uh, I think behind the scenes, many in Asia are worried about uh, this substantial, dramatic uh, uh, set of military investments. And indeed, some of those steps have led other countries to respond. And I would say AUKUS is one of those uh, responses. And you see a lot of um, uh, efforts in uh, deeper dialogue with the United States, revitalization of, 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 of other forms. I, I would say that the, um, the, the military capabilities that stretch from nuclear to cyber to space raise a host of concerns. And what the president sought to do was to say, as great powers, we have an interest in doing what we can to head off problems, inadvertence, um, miscalculation, and accident. That's at the first level. And so I think what we would like to do, and we have tried in the past, is to enlist China in discussions about what we would do if we faced some sort of accident or inadvertence. We're at the very earliest stages of that kind of discussion. And I think it'd be fair to say that President Xi indicated that they would at least in, they would engage in that discussion. We would sort of identify potentially who the right people um, uh, would be uh, to, uh, for that kind of discussion. And that would involve people on the military side, perhaps in other parts of our governments as well. But we're at the earliest possible stages there. And I think that would be one element that I think the president and Jake have in mind. I think another is we think the Chinese are embarking in certain areas, again, in nuclear, cyber, and space. And they are undertaking certain practices that we think are destabilizing. And I think we want to just have a very general discussion on what we might call doctrinal issues about, look, you know, certain steps that you might take in the nuclear realm would be potentially destabilizing. And so I I think that, uh, again, very early stages. Uh, China, in the past, has never been interested in arms control. Uh, They have been uh, generally reluctant to talk about operational limitations. Um, And they've been very careful about revealing anything associated with key uh, attributes of their defense posture and the like. So I think we go into this carefully, Steve. We're at the very early stages of this. I think we have to make sure inside our own government, what is the specific ask? What can be done to help um, lead towards greater stability and to reduce you know, uh, misunderstandings or misperceptions on both sides? Um, I I was in the meeting, Um, I I think uh, President Xi indicated that he was prepared for uh, uh, some of this, but I think that's going to have to be tested over time.
1: Kurt, as we listen to you about the Quad, about AUKUS, about the possibility for an initial uh, incipient strategic stability dialogue with China, it sounds like on the diplomatic and defense side, we've got a posture uh, that yeah. is evolving and in developing. But we're still missing an essential economic component of a China strategy. Uh, and if you think about, China has joined RCEP, this Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a regional economic association that China has been behind. They've also applied to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Par- Partnership, the C-P- CPTPP. C-P-P-P. C-P-P-P.
2: Yeah. It's a hard one to say,
1: it's a hard one to say. Which is the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Which we designed. Designed, built, and then withdrew from. Uh, You know, you there are very people various people who have said economics and trade are the coin of the realm in Asia. And if we do not have an economic and trade strategy, We're we're fighting with one hand behind our back or competing with China with one hand behind our back and maybe two hands behind our back. What are the prospects for seeing in the the coming months something on the economic and trade side?
2: Thank you, Steve. It's a really good question. I I do want to also, you you mentioned China's desire to join the CPTPP, the RCEP. I do want to also indicate that that there was a digital agreement that was um, in the region that includes Japan and countries in, in uh, Southeast Asia and Chile, China also indicated last month that they would like to join that. And so what you have seen, just to, to, for, to handicap and to get a sense, is after a period of substantial movement, strategic movement on the part of the United States, and I'm grateful for Steve to draw some of the, these things out, what we've done with with each of these institutions with Build Back Better vaccine engagement, China's answer, strategic answer, has been to move out in these areas and move out assertively. And so those who say that China is doing this for show in CPTPP, I would beg to differ. This is deadly serious. They are interested in deep discussions about what it would take to join. The most anxious calls I have received about anything that we've been involved in in the Indo-Pacific have come in the aftermath of some of these indications. And and I would say that the message generally, um, Steve, is the message that you just delivered. It's great that you're doing these diplomatic things. It's great that you're doing these strategic things. But you've got to have an open, optimistic, engaged, uh, economic Uh, message and uh, policy going forward. I do want to underscore that the president at the East Asia Summit and then last week at APEC indicated that the United States is now embarking on an effort to, um, uh, engage, uh, some key, uh, like-minded and, uh, effective partners in the Indo-Pacific on the prospect of building an economic framework around some key issues that are going to be critical in the 21st century, digital trade, decarbonization, workers' rights, um, uh, issues associated with technology vetting, investment vetting, um, supply chains. These are going to be the features of what will be the, and standard setting, uh, the defining aspects of the economic uh, architecture, commercial architecture of the Indo-Pacific. And just this week, Secretary Raimondo, in fact, as we speak, is engaged in deep consultations across Asia about this framework, gathering uh, input and ideas, working closely with our U.S. trade representative, uh, Ambassador Tai, President has both of them to work on this going forward. I think this is an important initiative. Um, it has been welcomed, and uh, the reaction has been uh, optimistic and you know great. Let's get busy uh, in the Indo-Pacific. I, I would say more to follow here, um, but I think the general approach is um, is uh, your general observation is true, Steve. This is this is the demand signal for Asia. I think everyone acknowledges and understands how complex these issues are domestically. We have to make an argument that we do this in ways that support working families, that support larger American purpose. And I think the administration is determined to do this. I will also say, Steve, that I find that you know, in, a, in a world in which partisanship and tension domestically is high. I find in my conversation with my Republican friends, sometimes they'll say, we have to think. We have to put on our thinking caps and figure out how to do this economic stuff in a way that that brings parties together that can be politically sustained domestically and can help us be successful in the region. And so I would simply say. Your general metaphor about one hand or two hands tied behind your back, it may be even more than that. Maybe one foot tied back there as well. Um, this is the coin of the realm. And, and uh, our ticket to the big game has often been our military. I don't think there are any questions about that in, in Asia now. I don't think there's any questions about our bipartisan strategic commitment and our innovation. This is the area that the region is looking towards.
1: I want to ask a couple, I've asked one question that we got from our audience, I want to ask uh, two more, and one is a sort of follow-on and might be an element of the kind of thing that Ambassador Tai and Secretary Raimondo are looking at. This question comes from Samir Lalwani, who is a senior fellow of Asia Strategy at the Stimson Center, and their question is, is there any consideration of a major technology partnership agenda? approaching the magnitude and import of AUKUS in the defense area, but in the technology area that might involve the United States, India, and Japan? If so, what might that look at? And if it's not being considered, the the questioner asks, why isn't it being considered? So I give
2: that to you. So I would say that the discussions around technology partnerships, whether it's its innovation education investment protocols those extend to every element of our strategy and what you've seen is when we've gathered like-minded countries together from europe in pittsburgh for the trade partnership council um, or the discussions that we've had directly with countries in asia um, i believe that this is going to be the most important arena of uh, potential uh, cooperation going forward. I think the likely venue, though, Steve, is not going to be one um, dominant forum that involves everyone. It's going to be a series of minilateral and multilateral engagements, some focused on some areas and others. Um, I, I, I think, for instance, the areas that we've seen the greatest collaboration to date have been on semiconductors. And you've seen that an array of partnerships with South Korea, with Taiwan, with countries in Europe. I think we're going to see some of the same sort of engagements on AI going forward. I, I, if I can just give you all a sense, though, of what the challenges here are. Um, so. Steve and I are of a generation that when we first started working on strategic issues we we it was the Cold War and to be relevant to understand how to participate we needed to learn a lot about areas that had previously been largely in the military realm how to think about throw weights and military conventional and nuclear technologies right and those things we would had to learn about to be able to participate in the conversation and to be effective and that was the coin of the realm then in terms of discussions between the united states and the soviet union increasingly for us to really understand this new arena of competition you have to understand how to engage at least knowledgeably a little bit on these areas of technology that i've just laid out And so what we have is a strategic community that is still learning, frankly, and a scientific community that has not been as advanced or engaged in the policy deliberations. And so what we're seeing is some, you know, uh, uh, it's not a reconfiguration, but sort of new groupings inside um, government. So for instance, I work a lot with the science advisor, with technology folks about how to design protocols that would be around investment in the United States or how to prevent certain kinds of um, uh, seepage of, of, of innovations outside the United States in ways that were antithetical to our interests. So Steve, what the questioner is asking about is how to you know, kind of form these partnerships. That effort is already well advanced now it's really more about what form it will take how it will be um nested in larger discussions and importantly ensuring that the key players inside the u.s government actually understand what they're working on
1: (laughs) always a challenge yeah secretary austin and vice president harris had successful visits to vietnam Uh, And the Vietnamese leaders agreed to expand the bilateral comprehensive partnership without yet raising it to the level of the strategic partnership. And this is a question from Andrew Wells Dong, who's the senior expert for Vietnam here at USIP. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the question is, what do you see as the next steps in U.S.-Vietnamese relationships? How do we strengthen strategic trust between the two countries and what are the obstacles to moving that relationship forward?
2: Thank, thank you, Steve. Excellent question. Very much appreciated. And so I think this, too, is a multifaceted uh, challenge. And it's critically important. When you think about who are those key states, we often think about ASEAN, obviously, as a grouping. But within ASEAN, the one of the most critical states and partnerships is obviously Vietnam. What we have seen is um, in high tech and manufacturing, a lot of companies and groupings who are looking to diversify their holdings investment patterns of trade in Asia are looking more and more in Vietnam. And Vietnam has seen remarkable growth in its technology sectors and the like. Um, We've also seen Vietnam playing a more active role within ASEAN We've had strong bilateral engagements with Vietnam. But that doesn't just extend to Vietnam and the United States. The same process is underway between Vietnam and Japan, Vietnam and India, Vietnam and Australia. They are raising their diplomatic game, uh, deepening their, um, their engagement across the board. So I would say, Steve, I think there are a number of things that we've got to undertake. first their leadership and ours have to become more familiar with one another. And those meetings have to be less um, uh, sort of uh, scripted and more uh, about sharing true strategic Mm -hmm. purpose. And I think that's a a work in progress. I'm part of some of those discussions. I think we've made some strides, but more needs to be done. Um, Second... Uh, Vietnam deeper in certain kinds of ins- institutional gatherings. And they're careful. They understand the neighborhood they live in. And they they have some limitations that they feel that they have to be careful about. But I think that's going to be important. Um, third, uh, uh, building a stronger defense relationship. And the Vietnamese are interested in that. I think given some of the last, um, uh, legislation that Senator McCain passed actually helped open the arena for greater cooperation between our defense firms and our government and the defense realm. I think that will take place over time. I think there's going to be more training, more ship visits and the like. I think that's going to be critical. But then I'm going to end where you asked the last question, Steve. At the core is going to have to be some sort of economic engagement that has um, a vision that sets parameters between the united states and vietnam vietnam in the past was a member of cptpp Um, i think we've had some general discussions about sort of the way forward but this is going to be a critical swing state not just strategically but commercially and technologically i um, even though we have you know different kinds of government different, you know, overall values. I believe fundamentally the ability to work closely with Vietnam will be decisive for us going forward.
1: We're running short of time. I've got one last question for you. And it's kind of a grand strategy question. Um, Question is this. If U.S.-China strategic competition is the sort of ordering principle of the age in which we live, and if the end of Pacific is the principal theater for that competition. What about the rest? Uh, Does a US commitment to the Indo-Pacific necessarily come at the cost of US interests and presence in Europe and the Middle East and elsewhere? Uh, And and in that context, are there policy trade-offs that you're prepared to make, we should make, uh, in terms of our interests and presence in the other regions? my own worry is that if we are so double down on the indo-pacific yeah. the cha- challenge from china is a global challenge and do we actually open the door for china to in some sense eat our lunch in these other theaters if we overcommit to the indo-pacific it's the sort of the the, the yeah. reverse of the rebalance to to asia
2: yeah steve i actually share that very much and you know ironically um I worked with others on this idea of pivoting or rebalancing to the Indo-Pacific. But I am deeply aware of the um, potential downsides of an over-focus on a region to the exclusion of others. And I think we did a little bit of that in the Middle East and South Asia. And I agree fully that we have to be careful about not repeating that in the Indo-Pacific. So we do have to step up our game. We do need to recognize that it's going to require more for us in terms of the, you know, investment in building capabilities inside our own governments. I see that every day um, in understanding what the nature of the challenges are. But increasingly, um, the quote, quote, China challenge is a global challenge. And we see it in Latin America and Africa on technology, on this idea of the export of the, Technologies of, of authoritarianism; um, these are profound challenges that we have to meet. And so, I would say that the key effort here is not to overinvest or not to overfocus. To realize that keeping our, you know, our global balance is going to be essential, but it really means more than anything else working with global partners. And so, although I te- there's a wonderful piece in foreign policy by our mutual friend. Um, uh richard fontaine in which he makes precisely this point you know and i tease him that you know god we had we've had like five weeks in the middle east five weeks in asia after 20 years in the middle east let's not like like and he's already saying no no let's be careful not to overinvest here i i I do believe it's going to be important to have this global balanced approach but at the same time that we work with allies partners and friends we're going to have to sustain, Steve, which you know better, the bipartisan understanding about what it is that the United States is about on the global stage. And that's probably our biggest challenge going forward.
1: And let me thank you again for being here. We need to let Kurt go back to work. He's got a lot on his plate, as we've heard. But we're, uh, we're, we're grateful for your being here. I think you've given us a lot to think about, and we appreciate very much your candor so if you could all uh, join me in thanking Dr. Thank you. Cook-Yen.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.